Welcome back to Devils in the Details. On this week's episode, a quick review of United's FA Cup final loss to Manchester City and what we learned. We give our thoughts on some recent transfer links. Rasmus Hoyland, Kolomwani, Mount again? Finally, we look ahead to the coming year and what we expect. All right, Aaron. <laughs> Good afternoon. How are you doing? Um, not great after the game, but other than the game, I'm doing well. Yeah, agreed. That was heartbreaking. That was heartbreaking. Um, especially the way things started uh, was a bit deflating, and then obviously we got a little bit of hope back with the the, the you know as soon as we got a dicey Bruno penalty, I was like, you know. This could happen, because if this is going to happen, this is how it would happen. You know what I mean by that? Yeah. <laughs> I think I think a lot of the internet shared the same train of thought, where they were kind of just like, oh no, here we go again. Like, we're yeah. going to do this. Yeah. Sadly, no. Um, but yeah, so let, let's, let's talk about it. Um, let's talk about it seriously. What, let's start with the tactical setup. What did you think about the tactical setup? Do you think we approached this game properly and um, ultimately we lost? So do you think this was a failure tactically in terms of the setup? Or do you think it was a failure in terms of the execution of those tactics or none of the above? Yeah, I felt like there are kind of three main elements to this. Um, the first one being, we talked a lot of last week about how we'd like United to set up in this game. Different approaches from other teams who have done well against City whether they worked or whether they didn't, and in what ways, and whether they could work for United. And all of that kind of went out of the window in the first minute because City scored, and that meant that United needed a goal. Whereas a lot of what we were saying last week was kind of keep it tight, don't concede a goal. When you play in these big matches, no matter how good you are, that is the biggest priority. It's a cup game. You don't concede, you don't get eliminated. Um, especially when you're the inferior side. If it goes to penalties, you have a better chance of winning because it's 50-50 in most cases, than you do in regular time. Um, and so it's just kind of... There were there were defensive mistakes in the goal, but it felt kind of unfortunate. Like, it was a great strike. Um, he had a little bit... Gundogan had a little bit of space. He took advantage. And then there was about 10 to 15 minutes in the middle in which United were level, but for the most part, they were playing from behind and they had to score. So that's the first thing. Second thing is, usually when United are playing from behind and have to score in these big games, particularly not at Old Trafford, they usually fall apart. And I think a big reason we both agree for them beginning to fall apart is because of an increased attempt to play out of pressure that doesn't work and leads to them losing the ball in bad areas and then conceding really high quality chances. United did not do that in this game. It seemed like despite conceding the goal, it was just the same approach of De Gea booting it long, trying to win 50-50s, trying to break um, onto the ball in the final third and, and create chances. And I think that prevented United from falling apart in this match, but also you saw their vulnerabilities from getting from one side of the pitch to the other and actually being able to sustain a comeback in the game. And then the third aspect is Man City are just the masters of 
one nil suffer ball. Like they love to take a one goal lead this season and just kind of make time go by. With Holland, they play a really strong rest defensive game because they can just commit Holland forward and still be dangerous going forward, despite having many players behind the ball. So you see a lot of like De Bruyne, Gundogan, Grealish picking up the ball in deeper areas with like two or three players ahead of them. Um and them and them creating chances like that, enough chances to keep them going while they just stay in the match. Um, and between those three things, what you saw was a decent, solid performance, despite being a goal down, but nothing that was enough to really get back into this game against a team that loves a one nil lead, um, and especially not twice. So, yeah, I think I broadly agree with you. I think. I saw a couple of comments, questions from people saying, what did you make of the defensive performance, the out-of-possession performance? Don't you think the midfield was sort of non-existent? I don't. Uh, or rather, I think I think the tactical approach was actually correct in this match for a lot of the reasons that you said. In particular, City are, are quite good when they go ahead 1-0 for the reason you said. Holland, they can commit forward, they can leave numbers behind the ball, more numbers than they otherwise would have been able to in previous seasons, and still have threat. Um, for that reason, City have gotten a lot more direct in transition as well. Um, and in particular, they've sort of used this 4-4-2 out-of-possession structure that also sort of plays as a front two in transition with De Bruyne and Holland. And I think... Obviously, Fred got skinned a few times uh, and committed quite a few fouls, but I think a a part of the reason that people perceived that there was no midfield is because Fred was man-marking De Bruyne for so much of the game, Um, and I think ultimately that was the correct choice because it prevented Holland and De Bruyne from playing off one another and creating really big chances. City didn't actually have many chances in this match, which I think is a huge win. Uh, this was a winnable match. They, they've battered uh, everyone the they've su- played the last two or three months. So, yeah, that is a big win. Yeah, I, th- yeah, I think this was a, a very good out of possession performance for United in the scheme of things. Um, obviously imperfect. The other aspect of why I think people perceive that there was no midfield is Erickson just couldn't cover ground. He was getting killed by Rodri and Stones and. Gundogan even, who I wouldn't say is one of City's elite physical players, but is certainly at a much better place physically than Erickson is at this point in his career. I don't know what to make of that long term, but I do want to talk about that. Because to me, I'm beginning to get the impression that you can't play Erickson in these matches against other athletic sides. Um, Just because to the extent that we did surrender control in midfield, I think it had a lot to do with Erickson. Um, Yeah. Um, yeah. I would I would zoom in on that generalization a little bit. I would say you can't play Erickson against athletic sides who have the technical tools to punish you. Like I think sometimes a player like Erickson can be really useful in cutting apart teams who are going to press you really well. But if you break their press, you can beat them. Like for example, I wouldn't have objected to playing Erickson against a team like Marsh's Leeds earlier in the season, who I would say are a physical side. But I think I would refer specifically more to teams that are very physical um, and also very technical. Teams like Newcastle, Brighton, City, Arsenal. Pretty much the big games against possession sides and pressing sides. Yeah, and, and I agree. I mean, I, I think United did a similar thing in January. 
City have changed their setup from the back a little bit, but it was a lot of the same where United played Casemiro, Fred, Eriksen, and Fernandes. And Fred assumed a lot of different marking roles throughout the match, whereas Casemiro, Eriksen, Bruno held a little bit more of a traditional role. The idea is you're kind of sacrificing an extra man in the front three. Yeah, if you replace Eriksen with either a forward who can create real thrust on the counter, get in behind, or you replace him with a midfielder who, yeah, is just going to cover ground. Either one of those in this match, I think, makes a huge difference because it gives United not only that out of possession, I wouldn't call it solidity, but stodginess. Like, City were able to gain territory but not create chances. Um, I think that is a worthwhile trade-off with Fred, but then you need... If you want to go and win this game, especially when you go down after 13 seconds, you need to have the thrust going the other way. You need to turn this into an end-to-end match. And that was the failure. And I think Erickson's inability to stop the ball um, more frequently and create slightly higher regains was a big part of why there was a lack of that forward thrust. It's, it is also, in a way, kind of general quality. Like, I think in a lot of these big games, there have been one or two things that just wrecked United and they got battered from a from a losing position. But in this game it just felt like a lot of the small issues in the team and personnel from throughout the season kind of creeping in. Um an yeah. example I would give is Wambasaka on the ball where I wouldn't say Wambasaka's ability on the ball was responsible for United not being able to get into this match, but it just meant that they lost one or two opportunities here and there where they could have gotten the ball into the final third. Um De Gea yeah. was another one a lot of the chances that City did create, I felt, came from um, from De Gea booting it long. Basically, what happens is the way United have run this tactic all season, uh, we've talked about it all season, but I, I don't know if we've talked specifically about how the team moves to make it work. But essentially, the team will get into a regular build-up uh, build shape to draw out the press. And then De Gea is supposed to play a long ball into to like roughly the half line where there are four or five United players in like in a relatively close area who can contest 50-50s. Um, but what happens when you do that is, when you get all of those players up to the half line, if City win the initial header with one of their back four members and get the ball into midfield, you often have situations where City will, be, will have five men forward and United will only have five men back. And so you're playing basically like, not quite a transition scenario, but pretty close. Um... And I think that happened a number of times because, A, because sometimes you lose the 50-50s, that's a risk you take, and B, because De Gea was hitting the wrong areas with his distribution entirely. He was going too far, or fatally, he was going not far enough, and then when City won the first header, they were just running straight back at United. And that's when you get the effects of a, of a player like Erickson not generating any regains. Um, and so, yeah, it, it just sure. wasn't, it wasn't a falling apart, but it was just not... United just didn't have enough to, to muster a comeback in this game, which is admittedly a high bar. Like most teams don't. Um, the whole reason City play the way they do is to give you no chance. Um, and most teams have had no chance once they surrender a lead to City. But it's just those small things that make a difference sometimes. And that's what differentiates trophy winners from teams that only sometimes or don't win trophies. I agree with you about the general quality statement. I think... De Gea, good example. I, I've got, I got. You said a lot of stuff there, and I, I've got a lot of 
comments to make, but uh, I'm trying to organize my thoughts in terms of how I go about them in order. I'll start with De Gea. I agree with you. His distribution was a huge problem in this match. Maybe one of his worst distribution performances all season, and, and there have been a lot of them. I'm not sure I would say the biggest issue was the defensive re- outcomes of that, though I agree there's risk in that and it could have cost us in another match. I would say today the big thing that cost us in that capacity was our ability to link attacks moving forward because he had, like, any time we had a goal kick, it was like, okay, this is not leading to anything. So, basically... Uh, a goal kick was essentially just City recycling possession, um, which, t- you know, however many goal kicks we had in this match, that's how many, like, zero expected, like, almost zero expected value possessions we had. Um, and so that's, like, a huge problem, right? Because even if you get, let's say, there, I'm making these numbers up, but let's say you get 10 goal kicks today and three of them make make their way into United, into City's final third, that is three more opportunities to create a chance. Um, and and those are massively important margins uh, in, in a match that was as close as this one was in terms of, you know, the actual distribution of chances. Beyond that, forgetting about De Gea for a second, because I think we've... That's clear as day. I don't think anyone tuning in here is surprised by that. The other quality deficits. Erickson, I think, is a, is a physicality quality deficit. That's an issue. Wambasaka, yes, I agree. Even though I think he actually had a, a lot of good moments on the ball today, he always follows up a good action with a bad action, and ultimately that's that's the difference, right? Like you need players who are can can have consecutive positive actions. Sancho, same issue today. Um, sometimes he'd have a good action and follow it up immediately with a bad action. It's pointless at that point. Like it, it's great to 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 make to make improvements, but. Ultimately, we need players who are really high quality and are going to make quality actions consecutively, consistently, um, because that's what City have. Every player on the pitch for City is going to do that. Uh, Yeah, so those are the players I would highlight in this match as having really, uh, like, I guess Wamasaka to a certain extent is getting penalized there for having been the outlet on the right with Anthony absent. Um, I think Wambasaka got the ball in space a lot and then failed to do anything with that space, which that, that's that's an availability bias, right? Like, oh, he got the ball in, he had opportunities to make something happen, whereas I would say Shaw didn't even have opportunities to make anything happen and obviously didn't make anything happen. Wambasaka had opportunities and didn't make anything happen. Is that a positive for Wambasaka or a negative? I think there's two ways to look at it, but ultimately, like, if you're isolated on the right as a right back and you can't do anything with it, that is a problem. Anyway, I don't want to talk about Wampasaka. I don't think he was a key reason United lost this match. Me neither. Uh, as much as I agree with everything you said. Yeah. I think we missed Lisandro a little bit, but we knew he wasn't going to be available here. A little bit more thrust from the back. Anthony was the big know, that miss much. to me. I agree. I think Anthony was a big miss in this match. <laughs> I think he was a big miss in this match. Um... Yeah, I think a real center forward would have made a big difference in this match. Being able to play centrally through the lines, spread it out wide, get Anthony healthy, get Lisandro healthy, make some transfers in the summer. You can address a lot of these issues. And I do think this is where I think we, we should transfer into, or <laughs> we should transition into transfer talk now. And I think this is a good way to do it. 
Yeah, but wait, before you do, I just want to say, I, I, I think we're talking about, so there's kind of two things here, right? One is the main tactical and technical issues we've talked about the United all season, which in a way we've kind of just rehashed again over the last five minutes. And then there's also the aspect of just, it's also a cup game. It's different to league games. A lot of what we talk about on this podcast is centered around league play because it's the biggest competition and it's just what we set out to talk about on a weekly basis. But in cup games, it's just so important and so valuable to not go behind, keep it tight, make less mistakes. And sometimes United are a very good team at that. I don't think today they were a particularly bad team at that, but it just went against them early. And from that point on, you're fighting to get back in with what you are as a team. So I think from there we can go into the transfers and the solving the issues. Yeah. You know what? Let's take a break and then we'll come back and talk about this. Welcome back, everybody. We just talked about the FA Cup final, the disappointment that was there. Let's be positive now. Let's let's talk about how we can address that. I think the obvious place to start is with a conversation we've already had, which is about Mason Mount. And we spoke about Mount last week. We sort of covered this, but I kind of want to reframe the conversation a little bit. The other day, I was tweeting about what United need from their central midfielder, that come in this window. I, I was not precise with my words, and I said Mount doesn't fill a need. And while I think that is true in the context of what I was talking about, it, it probably doesn't... It's not precise enough, like I said. So, Aaron and I have gone on and on these past, you know, almost a year now. <laughs> We're coming up on a year. Um, talking about how United need a press-resistant midfielder, somebody who can carry out of pressure in the first phase. Mason Mount is not that. And so when I said, you know, he doesn't fill a need, he doesn't fill that need. However, I think what we saw with Erickson in these last few weeks means perhaps he does fill a need uh, to a certain extent. And I think that need is, is somebody who can do all the stuff Erickson does, but then it also has the physicality to keep up with the league nowadays. What do you, what do you make of that? I also think we've spent a lot of the season discussing the sort of Erickson versus Fred trade-off where Fred is just so much better out of possession. And I'm not sure Mount is like a Fred level presser, but he's, he can't be that far off. Like he's, he's really, really good out of possession. So you're really, I think you're getting a player who's better than Erickson. Who's going to be available more than Erickson. Um, you're replacing his set piece taking, and you're also adding some of the stuff that Erickson lacked in comparison to Fred. He basically ticks all of the boxes except for the first phase build-up stuff. Yeah, I think my concern with it is that he winds up being the or instead of the and here. I think what you want Mount to be is like part of a four-man midfield rotation who picks up a ton of minutes and offers you something that's super valuable but if you don't get that press resistant midfielder that's why i'm that's why i'm i'm i have this i'm split on this cuz if he's the only midfielder you get 
I think we're still talking about this same thing in a year, which I don't want to be talking about. Like, I don't think it's an interesting conversation to have anymore. Yeah, I, I, that's, that's my qualm about it. However, I do think it is, it is, it is another need now, perhaps. We'll see what, what Erickson looks like in August. But yeah, I think maybe United only have two 38 match midfielders in the whole squad, which <laughs> is pretty bad. It's, it's, a, it's a huge depth deficit. Yeah, that's, that's what I have to say on that. I'm going to put aside the scenario where you can get insert elite press resistant midfielder here, straight into the team. Next to Casemiro, behind Bruno, you get that player, 100%. I think what's likely is you end up with a press-resistant midfielder who is not that good, um, which is fine. Sometimes a player who's not that good but fits a profile is a good signing, um, especially for a low amount of money. Um, an example would be Danny Ceballos. Another example that I would love would be Romeo Lavia. Don't think he's ready. I think... Um, I think certain people would contest whether Ceballos is not that good. He's been I, excellent for Real Madrid this season. Like, I don't think he's an elite option, but I actually think Ceballos would make us a lot better. Um, sure. But regardless, I, I see what you're saying. He's not Frankie. Go ahead. I don't think he's as good as Mount either, to be honest. I think Mount is... like you're, Maybe not in general, but I think I'd much rather have Ceballos than Mount because of what kind of player he is. Um. I don't know. I I can't say I agree. I just feel like I think I get, especially at the price, def like definitely. I think he he makes United much better for the money that you're getting. Yeah, maybe, but I Mount's contract is out next summer, so I don't think United should go pay seventy million for Mount. That's not what I'm saying. But ultimately, he's 24. He has multiple good Premier League seasons under his under his name. He fulfills multiple needs in the squad. And in a squad that I think needs multiple midfielders, he is one of United's rival team's best players and wants to join. I am highly, highly, highly doubtful that you're going to get the press-resistant output in early phases that you need from the midfielder next to Casemiro from Mount regardless of how, what kind of tactical accommodations you make. That doesn't mean I don't think Mount could be a good signing. But, and I, I hear what you're saying about Mount is, like I think you said on a previous episode, that Mount is one of the best midfielders that will move this summer. I agree with that. But if I had to pick between getting a profile fit or Mount, I would get the profile fit. Especially if it was Lavia. Like, I... I get that people don't think perhaps Lavia is ready to start for United. Understandable thought. I don't think it would be a great summer for your midfield situation if you just got Lavia in. But I think it would be very good in as an as a as a move in a vacuum um for the long-term yeah. outlook of the side for your ability to play in certain matches. Yeah, that that's how I feel about it. I, I think I said this last week. No more square pegs and round holes. It, it like, and and I I see all the things that Mount could bring, 
And if you got Lavia and Mount, or Ceballos and Mount, or God forbid, Caicedo and Mount, that's an amazing summer, right? Like, those are, those are, that'd be awesome. But if I had to pick, I still want the profile fit. And Mount is obviously a significantly better player than Lavia is right now. But I think the potential is there for him to be better than Mount very quickly. And I think, again, this his skill set is something United lack. Mounts is sort of, but less so. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I I would, I would try and get both or get Mount and Ceballos. Yeah, I, my I mean, my issue with Ceballos just... is like we keep on getting older, man. Like we cannot keep. Yeah, age, I, I, aging I get the that. squad. No, you know what? I I get that. No, I hear you. I hear you. Uh, and and Lavia has like thirteen, fourteen years ahead of him. So, yeah, I do get it. We'll see how it plays out. It looks like it's going to be Mount, at least as the first signing. What I fear is that it will be Mount and Rabio, for example. Even if you got Caicedo. Like, I think the best outcome is you get Caicedo. Even if you got him, I think you still need two midfielders. And... Part of the reason why I think Mount and Lavia is so appealing is because they're also both under 25. Um, so you're getting two young midfielders. So what I was saying is, you know, you you said United have two 38-game midfielders. That's Bruno and Casemiro. Bruno's 29 this year. Casemiro's 32 this year. 31 this year. Yeah, 31 so this year. So in the next five years, you're going to need to unearth six midfielders. Three starters and three backups. And you currently have none of them. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know. I, I, mean, I think I would Maynou, buy. I think. I mean, I, th- I think Maynou probably is at least going to be a squad player for this team. Yeah, I so agree. I, I would. You got be one, one of my six of the six. <laughs> okay, I think let's move on from from the midfield conversation. We've spent probably thirty minutes on Mount cumulatively over the course of the last two episodes. So, uh, let's move on to some other links. We had a pretty strong report claiming that Rasmus Hoyland is United's big center forward target, followed by Kolomwani uh, as an alternative. The the Hoyland links seem stronger than the Kolomwani links, but non- nonetheless, both are there. Any strong thoughts on this? Um, I've not yeah. watched a ton of either, I'll be frank. Um, my initial gut instinct is... I would be outright against Kolomwani. Um, the fees that I've seen touted are massive. And I also think he's a he's not the right profile fit. Um, he's kind of like a forward whose output is split between goals and assists. Um, he also likes to get on the ball and create a little bit. I think what United need is like a traditional number nine. And the only exceptions I'd make are for like Ballon d'Or level players, like Neymar, um, maybe someone like Joao Felix, depending on the price. I don't. Yeah, I, I don't think Colomani we'll enters that, that tier. Now, but... um, Hoyland. I think there's a chance Hoyland is good. Um, I've seen a little bit. A lot of people describe him as like a B. Erling Holland. Um 
I think that's a from what I've seen, and I've spent a couple hours watching a few of his matches from this season in the past two days. I'm not done with my watching, and I won't give a final verdict yet. But I, I don't see the Holland comparison that that much. I mean, I'm always skeptical personally. of when people call someone like a B one and once in a lifetime player, um, especially when when they happen to be of the exact same ethnicity. Uh, or, or very similar, and have a similar name, ethnicities, <laughs> and have a similar name and look similar. It's like I'm not sure there's substance to this comparison. Uh, but yeah, for, I'll I'll tell you what I've seen of, of Hoyland, and we can we can have a conversation based on that. With the caveat being, we're gonna revisit this next episode because I'm gonna keep watching more of him. Yeah, I'm gonna watch some of him this week From, too. Yeah. Well, I'll start with the numbers, then I'll, I'll st- and then I'll move into what I've seen. The numbers are not that good. He's putting up 0.4 non-penalty expected goals per 90 minutes in Serie A. Pretty For mediocre. Atalanta. At Atalanta, which is a famously a club that's produced massive expected goal figures for its strikers. Um, and not necessarily particularly highly touted strikers. Pretty mediocre. Uh, his shot volume is pretty low. It's less than three shots a game. They are pretty high quality shots, but they're not exceedingly high quality shots. Um, that's not necessarily a death knell. He's very young. He's 19. Uh, from what I've seen, I can tell you there's stuff physically about him to like. There's technical fundamentals there that you might like. There's the beginnings of good movement that you might like, but the things that make me hesitant are the movement isn't great. It's not like stand out really good. He's a bit of a channel runner, which is to say, which is a is part partially due to his role. Atalanta played a front two in a lot of matches this past season. So the striker roles are different, but again, that's another red flag because different striker roles. He's not always been a a low number nine beyond that. Uh, yeah, he's a channel runner, which is to say he doesn't necessarily stay between the width of the posts. He's not necessarily a traditional nine. He seems to focus more on being a pressure outlet in certain situations, um, dr- drifting wide, uh, again, hitting the channels, um, which there's value in, but I wouldn't say he's elite at it. I'd say he's, this is a, something that Darwin Nunez did as well before uh, Liverpool bought him, and he continued to do it at Liverpool. I think Nunez is much better at this than Hoyland. He's far more physical um, in a variety of ways. I think he's faster. I think he's stronger. I think he chooses better uh, channel runs, um, and I think he is more capable of holding the ball up when he does. He's obviously older, but that worries me that this is the primary guy, and I'm not a huge Darwin Nunez fan. I see Hoyland as kind of a similar profile and a lot worse at a lot of these things and with a lower ceiling. So I don't love all of that. Uh, Beyond that, the shot execution seems pretty good. That's what I've got so far. Um, Is this a bad player? I definitely wouldn't say so. I think there's stuff to like here. But I'm not over the moon. Uh, and I want to be over the moon, <laughs> you know? Um, Darwin's a good comparison, not necessarily in his style of play. Like I like I said, I haven't watched Hoyland that much, but I think, I think I like Darwin a little bit more than you do, but 
the summary is I think he's a good player who went for star money um, to Liverpool. And I think three or four weeks ago on the podcast, avid listeners might remember better than me. I, I threw a number, something in the range of 40 to 50 million. And I said, above this, you got to be getting someone who you think can be the guy um, for a long time. I think even at 50 million, you have to have to. Yeah. It has to be a guy. If you're going to gamble on a prospect who has played a season in a top five league, you're looking at that 40 million range, 30 to 40 million. And I think you run the risk with Hoyland of just spending more than that on a player who is just nowhere near guaranteed to hit those heights. There's this like weird in-between market of players who are bona fide world-class stars, your Mbappes, your Hollands, your uh, Asimans, and then players who are prospects on the cheap, your Brobbies, your, um, I don't know, probably Evan Ferguson a year ago, not now. There's this weird in-between spot where you're going to pay a lot for a player who you think can be Mbappe or Holland, but you have no guarantee of getting Mbappe or Holland. And so if they don't hit those heights, they're not worth that much anymore. And I think you run the risk of, of that for Hoyland if you pay in that range. And that's without any comment on how good I actually think he is. I just think it's nowhere near guaranteed. Um, and point four non-penalty expected goals for per 90 for Atalanta, a better attacking side than United are is is very lukewarm. Like it's it's not it's, it, I I go so far to say it's it's yeah. It's poor. I'd say it's poor, but he's young. He's really young. Honestly, I'm going to sound like such a Premier League fan, but bring me Pats and Daka. I I I'm actually on this like I don't even know if he's that good. I don't know what he's going to cost, but bring me if you're not going to get me a world-class striker, Bring me someone who's young, has a good track record in a non-top five league, and is cheap. Yeah, I think I agree with that. And, and, oh, I think Daka, and also is a traditional striker. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, and I think Daka also has the physicals there where it's like, okay, at least... At, at least the failure here is not going to be that this guy is just clearly not up to the pace of the league. Which, you know, I think... You could say that about uh, a certain center forward that we brought in in January. Yeah, I don't... Based on the limited viewing I have done so far, I don't think Hoyland is an elite striker prospect, which is a problem. I don't think that's acceptable. I don't think United should be spending big money on a player who's that. Um, Anyway, we will revisit this. This is not my final take on Hoyland. This is just... We'll do one more. We'll We'll do one transfer question. I like this question. You've mentioned before how influential Caicedo would be if United were to sign him. But outside of him and maybe Kane, which player that United are realistically linked with do you think would have the biggest impact next season? This is from Ned Murphy. I don't want to spend 75 million euros on a goalkeeper, but if Diogo Costa is as good as he looks, or as good as he seems to be at passing the ball, I think it's likely to be him. I think that just speaks yeah, to how if I'm much just talking about a goalkeeper. Imp- yeah. If I'm just talking about... If I'm sticking to players that United are legitimately linked to, and I'm just talking about impact, not impact for money spent, I, I agree. I think it's probably Costa. Yeah. Okay. I think that just speaks to how much you need a goalkeeper. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think it has more to do with 
not having De Gea play than it does who Costa is, though I think Costa, based on what I've seen, seems pretty good. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to look ahead to uh, the coming season. Welcome back, everybody. Now that we've discussed some specific transfers, we've discussed the FA Cup final, we're just going to look ahead at the coming summer, the coming year real quick. Before we do that, though, I want to stress to everybody listening, this is not our season review podcast that will be coming out next week. We hope to have a special guest, uh, so stay tuned. We're going to go back over this whole season that we've just had next week, but we're going to kind of go out of order, and now we're going to look ahead to next season. It's a little asynchronous, but bear with us. I think this is the better way to do it. So, we have a few questions. Uh, Two that I think tie together pretty well are from Nathan and United Realist. Nathan's question is, what would an acceptable summer window look like for you guys? And United Realist's question is, what should the priority positions be this summer in order? And how far can each signing take us? <laughs> I think an acceptable, which would be like a 6 to 7 out of 10 summer, would be a goalkeeper, a center midfielder, an, and a striker, and then one other player. Is this um, in order for you? No, no. Uh, first okay. striker, second central midfielder, third goalkeeper, um, and fourth could be either a second midfielder, second striker, right back center back it depends on who leaves at least three of those four under 25 at least three of those four direct addressment of a profile need a like really good window would be all of the positions i just said and like five or six out of the seven of them really good so that's two midfielders two strikers goalkeeper center back right back okay i think i agree with that i think an acceptable summer window for me, and I'll, I'll list these in order of the priority, but I'll also let you know when when it becomes acceptable versus unacceptable, is a center forward is a must, number one. Number two, center midfielder is a must. Number three, goalkeeper is a must. Then you need at least two of, and I agree it has to do with sales you need at least two of another center midfielder another striker a center back a right back and if you get two of those four plus the initial three that's an acceptable summer to me assuming they're of the right age profiles which i think is pretty much aligned with what you said if you made me order the other those those last four positions in a pinch i'd probably go Right now, a second midfielder, right back, a second striker, a center back in that order. But uh, you could scramble those around however you like, and I wouldn't really fight you too bad, too uh, too, too much. Um, yeah, so I think that answers that. We talked a lot about the summer, so I think let's stay away from that for now. 
And we're going to talk about next season a little bit. We have two questions that I think are pretty much aligned. We have a question from Sully, which is, what is the reasonable points tally to aim for next season? And we have another question from James. And his question is, what are your expectations for next season? Uh, So I think those are two similar questions. uh, But I think one is, what's a reasonable expectation or what's a goal maybe? And then what's your expectation? Depends on the summer, but I would be targeting 80 points and runs in all the cups, whether United win them or not. That's what you need to be looking at. You did 75 and that's, runs that's in all targets. the cups. That's your target? So, so is, is, is anything less than 80 a disappointment for you? I think less than 80, but still get top four is fine. But I would aim for 80. United got 75 this season. I think... It was a little bit inflated, but not a ton. And if you're going to go buy three or four players from there, I I think there's a chance you can do it. I think you can do more tactically with three or four new players. Um, Yeah. And I also think United did not show up to the first two games of the season, which if they can do that, start a bit stronger, I think they can get those expected points tallies up as well. I mean, not explicitly expected points, but underlying metrics related to points. Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. I think ultimately, for me, I I am doubtful that United hit eighty points next season, and I don't think it's a huge disappointment if they don't. I I think. No, if they get top, you're expecting. Yeah, yeah, I. Yeah, obviously the goal has to be top four, but if United get significantly better, like their performances improve drastically they hit a similar points total and they just miss out on top four, but otherwise do well in the other cups and are performing better. You go out in the champions league competitively at a later stage. I still think that's a successful season, even though it would obviously be disappointing. Um, and obviously you need champions league football. So like, this is not me saying, Oh, next season, my goal is fifth and the champions league round of 16. Obviously not. But my goal, my goal for the team and also my expectation is a, a drastic improvement in performances. But I think we're, we probably aren't aligned in terms of how much United overperformed this season in terms of their performances. Um, and so I think maybe a little less luck, but a little bit more quality. You wind up in a similar place in terms of your points tally, but you're a lot more consistent you look better doing it. And I think that would be still a successful season, even though obviously not a perfect year. I think if United's good performances this season were the baseline next season, that would already be pretty good and would get you close I think that'd be nuts. I think we'd be, we'd be, if our good performances this season, like our, 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 our Barcelona, our Barcelona's at home, our, um, you know, our Tottenham's at home, our, yeah, that's I mean, the you, goal. You Play like that consistently. Like if, if you can, I just if think you can you, do that I, consistently, then you're one of the five best sides in Europe. So, and like, that's a huge, and you will get 80 points, I think. And you will get 80 points. Yeah, I agree. If you did that, you would get 80 points. So I think that's the uh, goal. I'm not convinced we're going to be that consistent, but I guess. I don't, we'll I don't see. think. I, I don't think I'm, I'm not saying it's likely. I just think that's 
that's the target. I think that's the, I think that's the goal you want to set. Um, I mean, an eighty points is arbitrary. It it varies season by season, but sorry, go on. I think this is like an interesting thing because I think the easiest way for United to get better is with the press. But I think improving the press isn't, for the most part, it isn't a personnel thing. I think that's a drilling thing. Though, though I'm not saying it's not personnel at all. I think obviously personnel. You get another central midfielder who can run more. You get, you know, a goalkeeper who per- perhaps enables a higher line. Stuff like that. You can make the press better that way. But I think, for the most part, improving the press will be down to training. And I think that's the the largest improvement United can make is with that. The easiest improvement that United can make, and the one I'm more confident of them making, is with their ability to play through pressure. And that's going to come down to the summer. So I think we'll be able to say on September 1st how much better we're going to be playing out of the press next season. Do we get a goalkeeper? Do we get another central midfielder or two? Do we get a striker who lets us play uh, more effectively directly when we need to? Do we get more technical players at the back, etc., etc.? All of that will... If, if you get all of those profiles, it's like immediately five plus points in the league, I think. I think with the pressing, you have the potential to get a lot more points than that. But also, I could see a scenario where United don't improve the press that much. And that would be very disappointing. And I think that would be very bad. Um, so, I, I, there's just a really wide range of outcomes. Um and I think that, again, the pressing is harder to project, but perhaps more fruitful. So that makes it all the more nebulous. Uh, but again, we're also, <laughs> this is the last uh, day of this season, and we're trying to project what's going to happen next season. So it's perhaps the, the worst possible time to do that. Um, it's also yeah. super variable, right? If Liverpool, Chelsea, and Spurs turn up to next season the way they turned up this season... Then you have to get top four again. Um, I, I think, yeah, like absolutely no excuses, if, right? If they all do that, then I think you have to be fighting Arsenal for second. Like I think it would be if you really get that little competition from the other big sides, you need to take advantage of that more. Not have your your seven nil away to Liverpool. Not have your uh, your. Oh gosh, this is crazy. <laughs> Not, uh, you know, maybe you, you got to beat Chelsea away. There, there's, there's points to be had um, in those fixtures against these other sides that were kind of floundering um, that you need to, you know, grab. Uh, and, and even that should put you closer to Arsenal if that happens. But that won't happen. That won't happen. I'm pretty confident Liverpool will be very good again next season. I'm less confident about Chelsea and Spurs being really good, but I am confident. I don't think Chelsea can be worse. So true. Uh, And and I could see a world where Chelsea bounce back, but also I'm, I'm not bullish on them. I'm not (laughs) certain that happens. Tottenham. We don't even know who's going to be managing them. We'll see. We'll see. Um, But I think it depends more on us than it depends on the other sides, which, uh, I don't know. Maybe you you can take that as as encouraging or not, <laughs> depending on your perspective. But uh, the bar is going to be so high. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think 
I there's still always look, teams that well, fall we'll off. See. But the the thing is, you always start the season thinking six teams will fight, and then you end up with like three or four that do. I think now you're you're looking at starting next season with eight teams that can fight. Newcastle are going to make a big splash. Brighton look amazing. So I think there's odds are you have a better league than you've had the last few years. Just because yeah, we've said that before, only so many teams can fall off. Yeah. I think ultimately, and, and I'm, I'm definitely going to take this back uh, and be made a fool up, but I think right now, the way I look at it, there's five sides that I expect to be competing for top four next season where I'd be, I'd be surprised if they weren't. That's us, Newcastle, Liverpool, Arsenal, City. Um, of those five, the one that I'm most, I'm least confident will be doing that. It's us. Um, not to say that I don't think we will. It's just I think we have the highest variance of outcomes, and that has to do with uh, you know quality deficits at, at at key positions that make us tactically vulnerable. Uh, it's yeah. a slippery that, slope for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely a world. Uh, an, Honestly, a totally realistic world where United make the wrong buys or they don't make enough buys. Other sides, I, I honestly don't think Liverpool are actually that many pieces from being very good again. I think they're probably two, two or three. Yeah, two or three. I think I think two probably purchases from being better than us. Um, Do you um, think Newcastle are already better? Yes, I do. Um, but I think the numbers are a bit deceptive because I think we have a lot more quality than they do right now, but I think they could close that gap this summer. They have more money than we do. And, um, I think a couple of players that they have, have the capacity to make a huge jump, uh, to be being elite players. I think Gimaraish, Isak are two great examples of that, where I could see them, like Gimaraish, Gimaraish already is one of the best players in the league. I could see him being the best midfielder in the league next season. I could see Isak being one of the five best strikers in the league next season. Um, and both then of them. we should have bought both of them. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, I, Isak, I, I, I could see why you would would have been. They paid a lot of money for a player who had a very difficult season last year. Um, it was a risk, but it, it's paid off clearly. I do think we're better than Brighton. I'm less worried about Brighton. I don't think, I don't think they're, yeah, I don't think Brighton is better than we are, especially if they lose Caicedo, which seems likely. Uh, I think we will have more quality and be at a similar place tactically, hopefully next season. Um, it's, it's fun to see what happens next with them because they're getting to a point where they can't just unearth people who are at the level they need to climb up the table further. Um, they're going to have to get into a financial position where they can actually buy players like that, who are who are already like that. Um, like Caicedo, Mitoma are the first two of what I suspect will be a lot of talents there who are just really, really, really good. Um, and you Perhaps. can't just go. I to think like, it is more likely that they don't even try to be a Champions League side. I think they know they just what keep they growing are. the way they are. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that doesn't mean that like they'll never have a season where they finish in Champions League spots. I just mean, I don't think what's happening at Brighton has the ambition that what's happening at Newcastle does. And I say that with affection. Um, 
Yeah. Uh, I, I, that actually, that comes off condescending. What, what they're doing at Brighton is incredible. I just think they are realistic they, they, about They don't have the, the financial means. Have. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and then you have Arsenal. I mean, what what is Arsenal? Are they this, this, the side they were the first 19 matches of the season or the second 19 matches of the season? I think anyone would probably tell you they're somewhere in between. <laughs> anyone smart would probably tell you they're somewhere in between. Um, but where in between? Difficult question to answer. What kind of purchases do they make this summer? That'll be interesting. I mean, how much better do you think Arsenal are if they get Rice? Who else are they linked to? Rice. Um... I always sound like I don't like Rice when I talk about Rice. I don't think Rice makes Arsenal that much better. I I agree. I agree, especially if you're They're going to buy a backup interest. center back. That'll probably help a little bit. People think it's going to be worth like 12 points. It's not. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, In my opinion, what they need that no one's talking about is elite attacking quality. Like, Oh, gun to gun. When That's it comes they're, down they're to it. With gun to gun. Uh, on a free. Uh, okay. I could see that making them significantly better over Chaka. I think Gun- you put Gundogan in for Chaka, I think you get a lot better. Um, they're okay. also linked to Chavi Simmons, which I think is like a very funny link, but I, I don't really know. Like I think he's awesome. One of my favorite players to watch in football right now. Potential to be a war- a superstar. I don't think he makes them that much better in real time, though. I, I don't even think he starts. Um, so, but who knows? I mean... I didn't think the moves that City made last summer were gonna make, were gonna have the effect that they did. Clearly, they did to a certain extent. Though I think I I have so cool many questions about when a player like Gundogan's physical prime is gonna end and why yeah. he's not renewing at City. Yep. Yeah, I think that's a valid question. <laughs> Quite a bit better, though. I agree. Their their biggest issue is the lack of truly elite forwards i think jesus is the closest thing to it um but obviously he's not one of the worst finishers in the history of the premier league Saka, i think has the potential to give you that output um but his underlings are actually worse this season than martinelli's which i think is interesting i don't really know what to make of that i think he just plays Saka's underlying them yep that's definitely a part of it um and I, I think, I think Sokka's underlying numbers definitely undersell the impact he has. Um, but I think the point stands that he's still not amongst the elite uh, in the Premier League, even. Um, so yeah, okay. I, I think that's ultimately look at- like the the gap. Like Holland and De Bruyne are the two best players, two or at least two of the three best players in the league, and <clears throat> they are also the two players for City who play closest to goal. And I don't think there's, you can say the same thing of Gabriel Jesus Eddie and slash Eddie and Ketia plus Gabriel Martinelli. I think that's like the ulti- like ultimately the issue there. There's a gap in terms of quality, and I don't know how you bridge it. Maybe you just wait for Saka slash Martinelli to get there. Not a ridiculous approach, but I don't know. I think what they really need is Jesus to just randomly have the best finishing season of his career by far. <laughs> uh, I think that would probably be the easiest path to it. 
Because if he did, if Jesus suddenly had like one 20 goal season, then they actually would have a, 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 a chance, a chance. Um, but yeah, I, I think they're definitely banking on huge developmental jumps from admittedly very, very good prospects, which isn't a crazy approach when you don't have City's money. So Yeah, I don't mean this to diminish Arsenal. I mean, I'd love for us to be as smart as Arsenal were in the second and third summers under Arteta. Yeah. In the next two summers. Yeah, it, yep, totally agree. Be interesting to see how the Saliba situation plays out as well. So yeah, um, that's Arsenal, City or City, not even going to talk about them. Uh, Tottenham, we'll see if they get post-Koglu. Uh, I, lots of people I, I trust say he's amazing. I could totally see them being really nagging and like nicking third or fourth. That seems totally realistic to me. Uh, yeah, my concern with some of the managers they're being linked with is sort of similar with my Potter to Chelsea concern. Maybe I'm perceptually magnifying that, but I feel like they're not quite there with the personnel to play in a possession system, sort of similar to United. And I wonder if some of these coaches that they're being linked with, uh, a big example being someone like Deserby, I wonder how they fare with players who cannot do the build-up, and maybe not the high-pressing stuff. But Spurs have an amazing attack, which also works in their favor, because they just need a couple matches to go their way with Son and Kane shooting, and Kulisevsky and Richarlison are amazing pieces as well. Kulisevsky had a brutal season, but yes, I I still agree with you. So did Richarlison. Still think they're really good players, but yeah. Um... And then who knows what will happen with Chelsea? Is 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 Pochettino official? Official? Yeah, it is. Okay. Yeah. yeah, they announced it. Who? I have no idea what to expect from that team. Who they'll buy? Whether the the transfers will even be impactful in the scheme of what's a really crazily constructed side? Um, I don't know what to expect from Pochettino anymore. I could see him being excellent. I could see this being a mess. I I throw my hands up and say. It is what it is. I I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think the good outcome for Chelsea is they get a goalkeeper, central midfielder, and striker, which are exactly the same positions as United. In the in the middle, though, they need a slightly different profile to what United need. And then Poch, I still don't really know if he's an elite in-possession coach, but if he can get them to press effectively, I think they'll just still create a ton of goals with the players they have. Yep. Um, yeah, I agree with that. Playing out is also less of a problem when you have like Enzo Fernandez, who is a complete Incredible. myth. Like he's just, yeah. just mythological midfielder. He's just going to be amazing. So yeah, I think that, I think the high end outcome is actually that Chelsea are really good. I just don't trust them to execute on that. Yeah, I agree. All right. We're going to a reserve the right to change our opinions on all of the things we just said because it is the last day of the 2022-2023 season, not the first day of the 2023-2024 season, which is actually only two months away. Crazy to think about. Uh, But yeah, we are going to call that an episode. We'll also call it a season. Make sure to come back next week for our season review, which today was not 
All right. Talk to you next week, Aaron. See you next week. We hope you enjoyed this week's Devils in the Details podcast. You can follow us at Devils ITD Pod on Twitter or on a variety of streaming platforms. Our awesome theme music was made by Jacob Connor, who you can follow at Jacob J. Connor on Twitter. Have a great week and see you next time.